Welcome to It's Just Historical, a podcast dedicated to reading, writing, and publishing historical fiction. I'm your host, Suzanne Dunlap, author of Historical Fiction for Adults and Teens. This podcast is brought to you by my passion for the art and craft of writing fiction and my delight in talking to authors I admire about books I love. I'm here today with Mary Sherritt, award-winning author of eight novels, and her latest is Revelations, which I absolutely devoured. I've loved all of Mary's novels, and I think maybe I've read them all. I'm not absolutely certain. But anyway, Mary's joining me from Portugal, where she lives now. Hi, Mary. Hi. Thank you for having me on your program. It's absolutely my pleasure. This is one of the great things about doing a podcast is I get to talk to writers about things that writers like to talk about. <laughs> so, so it's a whole lot of fun. Now, Revelations is sort of a follow-up to Illuminations in its way, which was yeah. uh, a book about Hildegard of Bingen, which of course I absolutely loved. This one is about Marjorie Kemp, who is a, an English mystic and an amazing character. So my first question is, how did you stumble on her as a subject for your book? Well, I was doing a, a course at the University of Lancaster in England. That's back when I lived in England. And I was researching Daughters of the Witching Hill, my book about the Pendle Witches, which was published in 2010. And so the title of this course that I was taking was Late Medieval Belief and Superstition and all about kind of the beliefs of the late Middle Ages, how faith was a pivotal key on, in everyone's life in a way that we can barely begin to imagine in our secular age. And uh, even if people weren't particularly reverent, it all flowed around faith and so forth. And also the position of women was surprisingly fluid we have this kind of stereotype about women in history, but medieval women were far more empowered than Victorian women. They could have their own businesses, they were in the guilds, there were all these different things they were doing that often takes us by surprise. There were women physicians and so on. Anyway, I learned about Marjorie Kemp and it was just fascinating because she, she started out conventionally enough. She was the mayor's daughter in a town called Bishop's Lynn, which is now King's Lynn uh, in Norfolk, England on the East Coast. And she, uh, as a young woman, she loved beautiful clothing. She said she was very vain and so forth, thought very highly of herself. She married at 20 to a brewer and burgess named John Kemp. And she had her first child, and uh, then she experienced what we would clearly recognize as a severe case of postpartum depression. Mm -hmm. We joke about, we don't joke, but we speak euphemistically about depression as like the demon of depression. She literally saw demons everywhere. So she was informed by the belief system of her time and just was like felt that these demons were plaguing her and she was losing her mind. And this only resolved itself 
by this very visceral religious vision she had, this like almost complete wraparound stereo cinematic vision she had of Christ appearing and dispelling all the evil around her and saying, it's all right, you're going to be okay. And uh, she recovered from that. And she was back in her normal wits again and could resume her duties and everything. Even though everyone in her household by then thought she was a little bit crazy, she could carry on as normal. She went on to have 13 more children, bless her. (laughs) That would have driven me mad, but anyway. And she kept having these very visceral, sensual religious visions. And her... Marriage to her husband eventually soured. 14 kids is a lot. And uh, she said, can we stop now? But she wasn't allowed to. The canon law gave her husband control over her body. And she wasn't, she didn't even legally have the right to refuse. So she was in a very difficult, frustrating position. In addition to this, she was also a businesswoman. She ran a mill drawn by a flour mill drawn by a horse horses and she also ran a brewery for a while but at the age of 40 she came to a crossroads in her life and she just couldn't go on because 14 children imagine what that does to your body and a 15th could have killed her and her both her businesses had failed and her husband was just completely tone deaf to what she was going through. The only way she could resolve her issues was by taking an oath of celibacy, which she could not quite convince her husband to respect. And she decided the only respectable way she could leave her marriage, it wasn't even that respectable because she got a lot of grief for it, was to go on pilgrimage. So her father died and left her a bequest And she took the money, paid off her husband's debts, and set off on a pilgrimage that would eventually take her to Jerusalem and Rome. And uh, before she did it, she needed some spiritual counsel from another woman. So she went to the nearby city of Norwich to meet the famous anchoress, Julian of Norwich. So Julian of Norwich is this very iconic figure. I think everyone knows her. She um, chose of her own free will at the age of 30 to become an anchoress. That is to be completely bricked into a cell built on the back of the church, St. Julian's Church in Norwich. She even named herself after the church. We don't know what her real name was or what her life was like before she took this radical vocation. In my novel, Illuminations, about Hildegard, I talk about how Hildegard was uh, enclosed in an anchorage against her will as a child and how that was horrible for her and she fought tooth and nail against it. But Julian clearly chose this path as as, um, an adult woman, as a 30-year-old woman. So... We don't know very much about her life before she became an anchoress, but we do know that the plague came to Norwich three times before she turned 30. So we think we live in an age of pandemic. Marjorie and Julian lived through the worst pandemic on record. Mm -hmm. And 
we don't know very much about Julian's early life, but it's perfectly plausible that she was married and had a whole brood of children and lost her entire family to the plague. So she was in a very deep grieving state. So she actually prayed to be brought to the edge of death so she could look beyond the veil and see what lay beyond this veil of death. And her prayer was answered. So she had this near death experience and then a series of visions that were just completely transfixing visions of divine love. And she spent the rest of her life to unpacking those visions and writing them down in a book called Revelations of Divine Love, which was the first book in English written by a woman. And it's amazing. And she took the fairly radical step not to write in Latin, which uh, would have been still controversial, but she was, uh, but she wrote it in um, her own colloquial Norwich English, a whole book of theology in English in an age when you could be arrested for reading the Bible in English, where you needed the permission of the archdiocese to own a single verse of the Bible translated into English. So she took a really radical step. And Marjorie shows up asking for spiritual counsel. And these uh, two women have this encounter. So this encounter really happened in history. Marjorie mentions it in her book. And it's one of the key uh, turning points of my novel. Yeah, yeah, that all of that sort of strange history of what we can't even imagine how religion permeated their lives. Everything yeah. was controlled by religion. And what was really interesting was you, when you were talking about Hildegard and everything is that I've done some research because I'm doing this nonfiction book, but lately science or medical professionals have decided that possibly what she, her visions were actually migraines. That Yeah, they, I've heard that theory, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I wonder, it's really, and the whole idea of Marjorie Kemp having postpartum depression and, and reinterpreting all that, the stuff that goes with that into this these religious visions is yeah. really fascinating. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. So, context is so important. <laughs> And there's also been a lot of research in neuroscience about these kind of experiences. I think that the, this neuroscience is more recent than the migraine theory for Hildegard. Mm -hmm. And I need to track down the book. I read it as part of a background for a course I was, I was training as like a, a meditation teacher. And that was part of our background reading. And these researchers, if I can track down the book and the people, but they were like PhDs, like serious neuroscientists, said that people who have a regular spiritual practice, whether they're Catholic nuns or Buddhist monks or ordinary lay people, and practice it every day, they have different neural pathways than people that don't have a, a spiritual practice of any kind. So it's also possible that they saw the world differently mm -hmm. because their brains were literally wired differently than mm -hmm. ours in the secu secular world where we look at screens all day and watch cat videos and stuff. 
Yeah. It's so interesting because I mentioned your book to, I have a book coaching practice now. And ah. one of my clients, we finished working together, but she's doing a book of stories taken from, reinterpreted from the, pause while I think of the name, Cantigas de Santa Maria, the Spanish, ah. the medieval Spanish, this, their 13th century, I think, rather than 15th. But she has a, had a writing group and, and they would say, oh, there's too much religion in these. And, it's like, <laughs> and I said to her, ignore them, just ignore them, because that's, that's historically what happened. That was how yeah. they were. And anyway, this was all, the whole tome was a celebration of the Marian culture. So anyway, yeah. but that's really funny. I thought it was pretty funny. But I said, Do people who like to read medieval historical fiction will totally accept it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. If you, if you don't want to read about religion, then medieval historical fiction is not a good deal. Not a good thing. <laughs> not a good thing. No. But what about your sources? I think, isn't there, didn't she write a, an autobiography? Exactly. I'll tell the story. Okay. We wouldn't even know Marjorie Kent existed had she not written her book down. So she hired a priest and she basically dictated her book to him and he wrote it down in, in English, not in Latin. And it became the first autobiography in the English language. But, the, but it was nearly lost to history. It's all these like, my, I'm on a mission to write women back into history. That's my motto. And both Julian and Marjorie were nearly written out of history. So both of their books were like lost, obscure. They were just, Marjorie's book was just like completely lost to history. And then there, these really weird events happened at a country house party in Derbyshire, England in 1934. It was a house called Southgate House, a Georgian mansion, which is apparently now a hotel owned by the Butler Bowdens, this aristocratic family. And they had a bunch of people over to play ping pong. And so they were playing ping pong, but someone tread on the only ping pong ball and then they were looking through the cupboards trying to find another ping pong ball. And instead they ended up with all these, like finding all these really old books of great antiquity. And one of them was Marjorie's books. Someone at the party worked at the Victoria and Albert Museum. So they took these books there. And then the Marjorie's book came to the attention of the medievalist and feminist Hope Emily Allen, who said, cool, this is the lost book of Marjorie Kemp, because there was, she was quoted in some other book. So she, she knew that she existed, but nobody had discovered the book yet. So she ran with it, translated it into modern English, and it was an overnight literary sensation because Marjorie was quite eccentric and weeping fits during her religious visions. All these 20th century psychoanalysts were trying to figure out what was wrong with her. <laughs> and one of the theories is that she was just having a really bad menopause, <laughs> which as a menopausal woman myself, I think is hilarious. But anyway, but yeah, she, no, visions she, didn't come. Vision, I didn't get visions during menopause. No, no. <laughs> 
Echt? Yeah. Anyway, yeah, so she was, uh, she's definitely a character. So she had lots of adventures, and which you can read about in the book of Marjorie Kemp. It's, it's episodic, it's non-chronological, but it turns both very pious and hilarious. She was accused of heresy and on trial for her life. And she turns around and tells the Archbishop of York this amusing parable about a defecating bear and a priest. <laughs> and this, if she's found guilty, they're going to burn her at the stake. And she said, this priest woke up in the woods and there was this bear defecating right in front of him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Yes. And how she lived on after that. How old was she when she died? That is unknown. She went on pilgrimage and lived, she wrote her book between, I have it written down, I have it written down, 1436 and 1438. That was when her book was written. Mm -hmm. And she lived some years beyond that, at least, that she became a member of the Holy Trinity Guild in Bishop's Lynn, which was the foremost mercantile guild, the elite guild of the city. So she, and then she went on to travel some more. She, her first pilgrimage was to Rome and Jerusalem. And then later she went to Santiago de Compostela and she went all over England and got accused of heresy and arrested all over the place. Mm -hmm. And uh, later she went to Germany. She had a son who was, or was now Poland, uh, Danzig, which is now Gdansk in Poland, but then it was one of the Hanseatic merchant ports, and that's where her son lived. And yeah, she went all over the place. She was all over the map. So Julian was an enclosed anchoress, and Marjorie was all over the map. So they're completely different personalities, but they supported each other. And so when Marjorie wanted her spiritual counsel before she set off, she poured out her whole heart and soul to Julian, who said, and this is on record in the book of Marjorie Kemp, just trust, uh, trust the voice of God in your heart. And don't worry too much about what other people think of you. If some people dislike you, maybe you're doing something right. <laughs> Go, Julian. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I love it. I love it. Yeah, again, something came into my head and flew out just as quickly. <laughs> that just happens at my age sometimes. Oh, I know, I know exactly. Sorry, I can start here when I... <laughs> I recently interviewed Erica Roebuck about her book, The Invisible Woman, and she oh. wrote it in... It was fabulous. And she wrote it in the third person in present tense. And I we talked about that a bit. And yours is in the first person. And her reason for not writing in the first person, even though it was a very close point of view, was that there just wasn't, all the references she had were not through her main character's voice. So she had not, no writings of hers. So you chose to write in the first person. Was that because you had this rich resource that was in her own voice, or was there something else at play? What's interesting about the book of Marjorie Kemp, although it's an autobiography um, dictated to someone who wrote it down for her, it's told in the third person. So she she's not an I voice, it's this creature. She's not even referred to by her name. It's like this, I will show how humble I am and da da da. So this creature did that and this creature did this. 
So it's totally third person. But I think modern readers want to hear Marjorie's voice. And that's one of my missions, writing women back into history, is Mm. to give women their voice back if it was taken from them. There's what's really interesting. There's a book uh, by Carolyn Heilbrunn called Writing a Woman's Life. I know it very, very well. I have from graduate school in music history. She was amazing. It was, yeah, I was doing feminist interpretations of various musical things. Yeah, so she she mentions Marjorie, the book of Marjorie Campus, case in point. So for for time out of mind, both women's biographies and their autobiographies have been censored and altered because women are afraid to talk about their actual lived experience. They want to present a version of their lives that's acceptable. Mm-hmm. where they're socially acceptable and they can't just let it all hang out. And yeah, that's an issue that the whole issue of autobiography at all is, and you can't always trust an autobiography because it is, they're presenting the vision of themselves that they want to present, that they want exactly. to preserve. So it's not necessarily going to be all the dirty laundry and case in point, my forthcoming book, The Portraitist about Adelaide Labiguiar. I started out doing Elizabeth Vigée-Lebrun because she has a three-volume autobiography that exists. And then when I was doing the research, I thought I've always loved both of them, but I searched in her autobiography for her rival's name. They were there at the same time. They were just dogging each other's steps all through pre-revolutionary Paris. And she never mentions it once. She never mentions... Uh, La Biguillard, Madame Guillard, or anything in her autobiography, mm-hmm. not once. And she's only obliquely referred to in one, in one sort of point. So that, to me, was intriguing, <laughs> because yeah. you know, it means there's something going on here. You know? yeah. <laughs> so, so anyway, so the point being that you have to read between the lines of an autobiography, interweave it with the actual, the history, the recorded history. Did you find that with Marjorie's book or was it more directly factual in its way? It was, it's, it goes all over the place. It's, it can be very funny and very earthy. Like uh, she and her husband are walking back from seeing the mystery plays at York and they're walking back and they're sharing a bottle of beer, walking and sharing a bottle of beer as they go. And he has this cake tucked into his tunic. And it's this really homely image. And then he turns around and says, if a man with a, thor- with a sword came by and threatened to chop off my head if you didn't have sex with me, would you have sex with me? And she said, no, I wouldn't. And he said, oh, you're a bad wife. <laughs> <laughs> And then she's afraid that uh, he's going to impregnate her with a 15th child. And she takes off running and he chases her. And then because they're no longer young, they both collapse in a heap, Mm huffing and puffing. And he says, if you pay off my debts, you can go on your pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And it's it's hard to imagine someone making that up. It's just so earthy. Yes, I thoroughly, I devoured the book beginning to end. It's, you know, as usual, you do a really good job of 
building suspense, making it go so to so you have to read to the end. It sets oh, up the question you. in the beginning and you're just reading, reading, reading. You know, when's it coming? What happens? When does that happen? So it's a really excellent book uh, for anybody who loves historical fiction, but especially if you're interested in the medieval world. So anyway, is there anything about the book or the writing or whatever that that you want to talk about that I haven't asked you about? Well, just say that my big plot point that comes after the famous encounter between Marjorie and Julian is fiction, but I think it's a fun fiction. Julian is nearing the end of her life, and she's in this anchorage, and she has this highly controversial manuscript and isn't sure what's going to happen after she dies. So in my novel, she entrusts her manuscript revelations of divine love with Marjorie, who hides it hidden and scrolled inside her pilgrim staff and carries it all over Europe and the Near East where she connects to various people who are sympathetic to Julian's message. And she meets all kinds, you see the whole sweep of all the different kind of people you would meet on pilgrimage that the, the Middle Ages were so diverse and the different groups of people that existed. There were the Beguines, which were like more secularized nuns, except they didn't belong yeah. to a religious order. I have to order. ask you a question about that. What I, the only other time I've really heard the word Beguine is in the Cole Porter song, Begin the Beguine. It, yeah. It's a dance. Do you have any idea where that connect, where, why that's called? Is there any connection between the order and the dance? Not to my knowledge. It was a women's spirituality movement that began in the Middle Ages. These hmm. women would live together in what were like feminist communes, but they didn't take any religious vows. They didn't have any like religious order controlling them, and they could come and go as they pleased and leave whenever they wanted. They weren't there for life and they were self-supporting. They did various industries like linen weaving and so forth to support themselves. It's like like a modern commune almost. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I could totally understand in those days wanting to say, okay, enough men. <laughs> yeah. Let's just hang out together for a while. <laughs> yeah. No 14 children for me, please. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That was really great because, of course, the rolled-up manuscript in her staff was always a point of tension. Is it going to be discovered? What's going to happen? And all that kind of thing. So it was, uh, but it was really fabulous. And you're still, are you still doing off author events and such? Yeah, I have a whole um, list of upcoming author events on my website. On my publication day of April 27th, I have a virtual event at Majors and Quinn in Minneapolis, and I'll be in conversation with Marianne Grossman of the St. Paul Pioneer Press. And then I have further virtual events and also a mini retreat on the 13th of May with Abby of the Arts and Christine Walters Paintner, who is a lovely retreat leader. So that's mm -hmm. going to be a really fun event. Really nice. That sounds fabulous. Of course, I'll put links and all that in the in the notes for the show and everything like that. Yeah, I really can recommend this book enough. It's really, you just sink into a totally different time, which is one of the reasons we all love historical fiction. It's just yeah. taking us out of the present. I really want to thank you for 
talking to me and I will put this up soon and let you know when it's there and you can share it with everybody you want to share it with. Oh, thank you so much. It was a joy to be on your podcast. You've been listening to It's Just Historical, hosted by Suzanne Dunlap. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google. Visit the podcast website at itsjusthistorical.com and find out more about me and my books at suzanne-dunlap.com. That's Suzanne with an S and Dunlap with an A. Until next time.